Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlund. I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. So my guest today is Sarah Michaud, and she is author of Co-Crazy, One Psychologist's Recovery from Codependency and Addiction, a Memoir and Roadmap to Freedom. We're going to talk about all things codependency. We're going to talk about how focusing on yourself and understanding your own needs and wants first is the way to find peace and freedom in your life and not sacrificing yourself for someone else's addiction. I hope you enjoy this episode. Sarah has so much positive energy and wants to share her wisdom from her own experience. And I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. And if you're getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, please write a review in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. And you can also join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast. Click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I have a wonderful guest today, Sarah Michaud. Yep. And she is going to talk about all things codependency. She's going to talk about her book, Co-Crazy, her own memoir about her own recovery and her own story. So, Sarah, why don't we just start with you introducing yourself and we'll, we'll go from there. Hey, okay, Dwayne, thanks so much. I'm Sarah Michaud. I'm a clinical psychologist in the Boston area. And I recently published a book on codependency. And the reason being really is because of several reasons. But one reason is from working with patients and clients for the last 30 years, a lot of them being recovering addicts and alcoholics, it seems like the major underlying issue is <laughs> unresolved codependency. And so if you look at it, when someone gets sober, a lot of those underlying, what Bill W. used to call the underlying causes and conditions are there. And 
when he said, you know, fear is the evil and corroding thread, I mean, codependent behavior comes out of fear. And you can say addiction comes out of fear or unresolved feelings. Yeah. Trauma and fear go together. Threat go together. Absolutely. I'm kind of throwing them all. And I will say, Dwayne, I like simplify everything. I'm someone that tries to really break things down in a simple way. So really correct me if something, obviously some of these concepts are way more complicated, but I'm trying to help people kind of identify the, the things that are getting in their way so they can change them. And that's why the book is fairly simply outlined too. So let's, but, let's, yeah. let's, Go let's, ju- let's just jump in to your sure. story and getting to this book because you have over two decades of sobriety yourself. This has yeah. been your own story. And I'd yes. love to hear what motivated you to write this and put all of this knowledge okay. down for, yes. for others. Yeah, I mean, firstly, like I said, was clients, but also I've got almost literally 40 years of sobriety and I've had numerous bottoms with codependency. So my last one, I married a guy in 2006 who was like 15 years sober and thought that that was the man of my dreams. And like we hear very often in the halls and with people we know that are in recovery, he ended up relapsing, had a surgery, got into the opiates. And it was really, really hard because when you're dealing with addiction, obviously people are lying, (laughs) but, you know, but we want to believe them. And it is so easy because addiction is a mental illness as well as physical you know, the rationalizing, the minimizing, the denial. And what happens for the codependent is we have all the same processes going on. We don't want to believe that they're relapsed. We want to believe that he needed that extra opiate for that surgery. And so it's really hard to know what reality is. Just like it's really, yeah. And just like it's really hard to know what reality is when we're growing up in addiction. I mean, that's a symptom of growing up in a household of addiction. You don't know what reality is. Kids are trying to make sense of their world and they're seeing, say, someone who's drunk or passed out. And then they say to their parent, gee, have you been drinking? And they say no. So (laughs) reality is very confusing as a kid. And when you're with and dating and married to an addict, it's very confusing because they're not telling the truth. Go ahead. So you, so you found yourself in this unreality. Yes. Um, I'm imagining and I make up from my own experience and clinical experience. It's it's kind of a chaos because you don't know what's yes. real. You don't know. Yes. You don't know if anybody's telling the truth. You don't know if nope. you should do this or that. And it's, it's nope. you feel in complete chaos. It's very confusing. And this is the thing is that, and this is why partly I wrote the book, because the focus when you're married to someone with an alcohol or addiction problem, or really, I try to broaden it even outside of addiction, because many people are codependent that don't have addiction in their relationship. They're just preoccupied with their partner's lives. And I see it as a, as on a continuum, you know, everything from like a new parent who becomes a little controlling all the way to being, you know, like you, we've talked about in an abusive relationship where you're totally preoccupied with what the other person's behavior is. 
So when you're married to someone who relapses, hopefully I don't lose my train of thought there. The focus was on my husband. What am I going to do to help him get sober? You know, he would give me his medications and say, okay, only give me a certain amount. But then when he was in pain, he wanted another one. So basically I become responsible for my partner's sobriety because now I'm focused on Is he getting to work? Is he not getting to work? Is he happy? Is he not happy? Is he going to take an extra pill? Is he not? My entire focus becomes on what he is thinking, feeling, and doing. And that is the definition, one of the many definitions of codependency. So the consequence is I completely lose touch with what I need, what I feel, what I think, what I'm doing, and my world is all focused on what they're doing. And that never works. <laughs> right. So for yeah. you, as you're in this relationship, how did you start to see that? Like, how did you start to, to go, wait a minute, something yeah. here is amiss? Yes. Just like with addiction, it's progressive. Codependency is progressive all, as well. And I was going to talk to you about, you know, a friend and I were talking yesterday about codependency kills people, and it really does. So we can talk about that at the end. But It's progressive. I started getting sicker, meaning depressed, anxious. He wasn't changing. Life became more and more chaotic. And I ended up literally hitting a bottom where one day he was supposed to pick my son up at school and the babysitter called and she said, I'm picking up Bo. And my husband couldn't pick him up because he was wasted somewhere. And that was kind of when that line was crossed where I went, oh, my God, it's affecting my son. I have to do something. But it was cumulative. It was like different things would happen. And then he promised, I'll go to treatment. I'll do this. I'll get, you know, that's the trouble. They know exactly what to say to you to stop you from kind of taking an action, which is you really need to go to treatment. They'll, you know, addicts are brilliant. I know I am one. Right. And it's it's almost like what you're describing is a loss of a sense of self because you're yes. so focused on the other that you you lose yes. yourself. You you lose Absolutely. connection to yourself. Absolutely. In fact, during Zoom, I did a group with a bunch of women I had met in meetings, and the name of the group was coming home to ourselves because the right. whole idea is. When you're in that severe codependency, you don't know who you are. You don't know what colors you like. You don't, you're, I have sat with couples where I'll ask the addict a question and the partner will answer. You've probably had this experience. And even like they're total, they don't even see they're doing it. And so the people can't even answer for themselves. You know what I mean? We're so detached that. It's all about that they're the problem. And that's the other piece about why I wanted to write the book. Because like we were talking about earlier, codependents end up being kind of the classic victim, quote unquote, or this is happening to me. Their addiction is happening to me and I'm suffering. And I'm not minimizing my suffering and that I was a wreck because I was or partners with people that are, you know, abusive or alcoholics. But until I could shift the focus from them to me, whoever it is, my child, my father, my, you know, it doesn't matter. We all have different relationships. But until I realized 
that I had to focus on myself to get better and start figuring out what I needed, I couldn't change the situation. Yes. What was, so I'm imagining people out there, you know, listening and they're in this situation. What was the fear of when you're starting to like focus on yourself, right? There's something that I guess stops us from wanting to focus on ourselves. What stops people from starting to turn that focus around fear. to themselves? <laughs> fear. Okay, fear. Yeah, Let's talk fear. About fear. I mean, I think many people are afraid of change, afraid of, I mean, the biggest fear is the person dying. I mean, with many folks that have come to me over the years, they're like, if I ask my son to leave, he might die. He might end up homeless and alone. The delusion is that you're controlling the other person's behavior. That's the lie. We think because say, for example, my son is living upstairs rather than I'm monitoring what they're using that they're not gonna die. And I've had clients where their kids were dead in the basement. It doesn't matter. You're not controlling their addiction, but you believe you have control Because you're thinking, oh, they're still living here. I mean, this is just an example. So they're not going to die. So the greatest fear is my behavior is keeping them alive. And that's a lie. I hate to say that. You're probably going to have a lot of people like right into you now. But it really is a lie. I can only control my behavior, which is what I ended up doing with my husband as I said, look, I can't live like this anymore. It's now impacting my son our son at that point, and I need you to go to treatment. That's much more powerful than me saying, you're driving me crazy. You need to do this. You need to do that, which is what happens when you're living with addiction. You want to like trying to take the medications and hide them or, you know, like monitor them and do all that kind of stuff. Manage them. Absolutely. And that never works. All that does is cause conflict in the relationship and resentment. With both people. And so, but when I say what I need, and this this is a whole, there's a part on communication in the book because it's very tricky to get in your body and say, this is what I need rather than blame them. Because it's easier to blame them and say, you're causing my pain. But the fact is I stayed in a relationship until it got bad enough, which often is the case. You know, I mean, it really is because our minds tell us it's going to change. It's going to get better. It's going to be different. He's going to not run out of pills this time or whatever I tell myself. I mean, addiction and codependency, you know, like I say, that mental components where we tell ourselves what we want to hear. I mean, that's part of it. Right. And I think also like when you're talking about this, I'm thinking about a person who's who's starting to do this. And it feels like the only thing I can do is either I'm in this kind of codependency world or I have to completely split myself off and not care about the other. Right, right. And they get stuck in that that dichotomy, which is not, I don't think that's what you're really saying. Not at all. I mean, this is the thing. This is the other thing. To really love someone is to take care of me because in addiction, and this is the thing with the, we're just focused on addiction right now. It's not helping my husband by not addressing his addiction, right? It's not helping him. It's not helping me because I'm getting worse and worse and it's not helping him. 
It's the same example I give in the book. And parenting is a huge piece, like especially now. I mean, we could talk about just parenting forever and codependency. So I remember reading this parenting book and he said, if you keep packing your kid's backpack, they're going to start to believe they can't do it. So that's the other consequence of me being a controlling parent and thinking I need to do everything for them, which is codependency. And it's out of fear. A lot of codependent behavior is based in, oh, my son won't do it. Or what will happen if if we're late or whatever the fear is that's coming up for the parent that makes them control that behavior. But the consequences of codependent behavior, the people around us start to believe they can't take care of themselves. And again, everything's like, you know, different circumstances. I'm talking in generalities. Yeah, it's not it's not black and white and every situation is so unique. But what I hear you saying is there's this this ability to start to own your own needs, your own wants yourself. Like what we were talking earlier, you you lose connection to that. And if you don't know what that is, you're not going to be healthy for yourself and you're going to suffer the consequences, depression, anxiety, sadness, loss. your own loneliness. Absolutely. And the thing is, it's the best thing for the relationship. I mean, that's the other thing that I think is lost in, you know, in codependency work. It it not only doesn't help the other person for me to enable them, again, whoever it is, it doesn't help me. So the delusion is I'm helping when I'm actually harming both of us. I mean, that's why it's so serious. And that's why I'm so motivated to get these messages across because it's really this delusional system where I'm, again, going back to parents, where I'm like helping my kids do certain things, whether I'm getting them into a sport or, but really it's about our own fear. And just tolerating what's happening for me if my kid isn't in a sport, for example. What happens to me? Do I start thinking I'm not a good parent? Do I start thinking something's wrong with my kid? All of those subtle pieces of codependency are really powerful. Because really the bottom line is, like you say, it's the inability to just be with myself. I mean... We think it's the inability to tolerate someone else's behaviors, but it's really what happens for us when they're doing their behaviors. It still goes back to this lack of being able to tolerate what's going on inside of me when my husband is that way, when my child is that way. I would imagine that means there's a lot of letting go, right? I I have to let go of the consequences if I choose to honor myself. And that's scary. You know, it's like you have a loved one in front of you that reality is, I mean, you can be supportive, but at the same time, the reality is they're going to make their choices. They're going to do their thing. And so there's this combination of like being supportive, but also letting go of the outcome. Yes, absolutely. Letting go of the outcome is key. And what, and you're kind of going in and out. So I apologize if I missed up, but, um, the thing is, you know, I see our, our systems, our mental and physical systems as this kind of computer from the past, right? So we're kids, we have all these experiences, we collect all these belief systems, and we have all these wounds. 
So we've accumulated all this stuff over the years, and we're going to kind of do whatever our coping skills have been for our lives. We forget that, geez, we've left that house now, and we can we have choices now. But so many of our belief systems and our, you know, how we handle feelings are unconscious. So we're bringing all that into all our relationships. So how we behaved and how we survived, whether it was we shut down or we acted out or we denied or we rationalized or we hid out, whatever we did is what we're going to do, especially in our most intimate relationships, because that's where all of our mother father stuff comes out. That is how we learn to interact with others. Yes. Our early object relations. Yes. Yeah. And so in this letting go, when when you started to do this in your own life and in this relationship, what were some of the biggest fears for you that said, oh, I don't know if I can do this? Right. Well, I think for me, I had reached such an end point that I was really, like you said, I was willing. I knew that if I lost the relationship, it would be like I had to get to a point where I had to say, if I lose this relationship, I'm going to be okay. But many people, the fear, there's a lot of fears. There's the fear of being alone. There's the fear, am I going to be able to parent by myself? There's the fear of what's going to happen to them. The fear of not being loved. The fear of rejection. The fear. I mean, there's so many fears that come up, which are really, I've learned through my own work, the fears are from the past. The problem is they continue to be you know, not act yet. They get activated, but they continue to be played out in the present. My fear of being alone is not about my husband. It's about my past. It gets played out in the present. Now, my fear of not being loved is from the past and it will get activated if I ask my husband to leave, but it's still my own stuff. That's, that's why, you know, the book is all about, you know, I have to be responsible for what's happening over here. But you're right. Obviously, people are going to become afraid of change. You know, of financial, you know, people are afraid of financial stuff. You know, so, I mean, there's lots of fears that can come up. And there's ways you can do it. I'm not suggesting everybody has to, you know, leave their relationships if they're troubling. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But I am saying it will improve if you focus on yourself. And I believe that 100%. Absolutely. I agree with you. Ultimately, that comes down to us. We're in our own body and we have to make those decisions. I think you said something really important is that core fear of being alone. Yes. Like there's there has to be some comfort in yourself, some internal strength to say, you know what, these are my boundaries. And if you cross them, I'm not going to be with you. Right. I, or I can't be with you or I can't be in this relationship or or the relationship will have to look like this yes. because I'm connected to myself and, and I'm okay with the possibility of losing the relationship, even though it might be really painful and of course. sad and all of that. But I, I think there's, there's something there about that. Yes. I mean, boundaries, I, I don't know if you saw this in the book, but boundaries are one of the biggest topics in this work. In fact, I say in my book, if, Clients did two things I wouldn't have a job. And one is set boundaries and one is speaking up. And both of those things, if you have codependency, 
are very hard to do because you're worried about what's going to happen to someone else. Are they going to reject me? Are they going to get angry at me if I speak up? Are they going to stop loving me? And boundaries are so key. So you're absolutely right. It's figuring out what works for me, again, without thinking about them, and then communicating it. And speaking up is very challenging for codependent people. But, you know, a lot of times they either shut down because that's what they did to survive as a kid, or they get angry and act out. You know, it's that all or nothing, overreact or underreact. And that's why this whole idea of coming home to myself and, you know, my mantra with people is saying to yourself, what do I want? What do I need? What do I want? What do I need? What do I want? What do I need? Because most people who have codependency, it's what do they want? What do they need? So it's really turning that around. Right. I was going to also ask, as we were talking about this earlier, about when someone is being actively gaslit, actively deceived in a relationship. And sometimes they don't even know that this is part of the relationship, if that makes sense, because of the deception. And so often I hear that, you know, they can get labeled as codependent, but they don't look at the actual trauma that comes from that kind of abuse. Right, right. It's very tricky. I mean, most people that I've worked with in recovery and you too i'm sure have some kind of trauma history i mean probably at least 50 percent probably more than 50 percent. more than 50 (laughs) percent. you're absolutely right so very often they do get into i see it all the time into some kind of abusive relationship the trouble is just like with addiction with abusers it's the lying it's the deception it's the this is how the world is but it's really different And it's really hard, again, to know what reality is when you're relying on someone else's behavior, what someone else is saying, what someone else is doing. That's why it's always to get in touch with, you don't have to label it codependent or whatever, it's more just, what can I do for myself? How does this feel? Does this feel off? Is something off here? What do I need? What do I want? What feels okay and what doesn't? Well, it sounds like what we were talking about earlier, it's that reconnection to the self. Yes. Like being able to turn some of your gaze inward and sit with yourself and your own feelings and your own body to get the information you need to be able to make an informed decision for yourself. But if you're focused on the other all the time, your own needs, you ignore them. You ignore them. And the other thing, what I was thinking about was when I worked at McLean, when I worked at this psych hospital around here, McLean Hospital, I worked in this addiction unit. And one of the things was always, you know, is someone using? How do you know if someone's using? Right. Because people lie. Right. And the thing is, what I was taught is it does. You don't even need to figure out yes or no. What you need to observe are the behaviors. So to me, a really critical part of this is sticking with the facts, what I call sticking with the facts, which is what interventions are based on. So if you're in an abusive relationship, and I remember doing this with a gal who was in a serious abusive relationship for years when I saw her, and part of her own coping is to be in denial and to be in kind of that evasiveness. And so I literally had her for a month write down on a calendar what her partner did verbally, physically, 
because at the end of the month, she would be like, oh, it's not that bad. It's not, you know, the denial, the rationalization. But when you see the facts in front of you, this is what he did. He had an affair. This is what he did. He screamed and yelled at me for half an hour. It's very hard to go into your own denial about that. Right. It helps to see reality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, you're you're looking at not just your feelings, you're looking at the the data yes. and you're looking at it to like check the facts, look at everything, get that information and then yes. weigh that against your own experience. Yes. But you have to be in tune to yourself and you can't be in crisis and in Absolutely. threat mode all the time to do that. That's the hard part, right? If you're in threat Absolutely. mode trying to make sure someone doesn't die, it's so hard to like sit there yes. and do that. But you you have you, you kind of have to. Yeah. I mean, obviously support. I mean, like you're yeah. saying, I mean, having some kind of support because it's really hard, like you're saying, if you're in crisis, unless very often when something happens though, that kind of pushes you over the edge, like something shifts, you know, it's like hitting a bottom with addiction. Sometimes with codependency, it's the same way. It's like for some reason that last time they said this, or, you know, you finally get, you cross that line, yeah. you know, and become ready and willing. It's like, you don't want to suffer anymore. And, you know, when you were saying the body stuff, it made me think of, I'm sure you've heard of Gabor Mate and he wrote, yeah. When the body says no. And literally that whole book is about the physical consequences of codependency. Literally every example he gives in that book, most of them are about people that are having physical consequences from codependent behavior and from not focusing on themselves. I mean, that's why this stuff, he breaks down the whole physiological responses like you're talking about you know, the cortisol and what happens physiologically to our bodies. But if that goes on long enough, you are going to get sick. And he literally yeah. breaks that down. And very often codependent people, it will manifest in some somatic way. So there'll be some kind of crisis, whether it's an emotional one or a physical one or something, depression. Right. And yeah, it will play out because you're constantly living under this threat response with all yes. of these hormones, which increases yes. inflammation in the body. Everything. You know, mitigates your sleep, which is so important for mental health and physical yes. health and all those things. And so you're living in this crisis situation all the time. And Absolutely. to be able to start to own your own experience and then start to be strategic in your behavior choices you can start to, I guess, un undo this stance. And that, I guess that gets us to the next part I want to talk about, which yeah. is, you know, moving from codependency to what we were also talking about earlier before we started recording, uh, empowerment. Yes. And moving from this frame to a frame of, of, of empowerment. Yeah, I mean, that's what really the whole book is about. It's how to, you know, I in the book, I there's a, like 10 or 15 tools called leaving crazy town. And those are all the tools. And, you know, the first tool, because by the time someone really identifies their codependency, they're exhausted. So literally self-care, taking care of yourself, changing the focus to yourself is the first step. Then it's like taking action steps. Do you know what I mean? Because not, it's like that nothing changes if nothing changes, even if it's something small. 
And again, we can't become empowered if we're still focused on how the external world is responding to us. I mean, think about social media or think about, you know, most relationships. I mean, it's all about how is this person, do they love me? Do they not like me? Are they attracted to me? Or are they not attracted? Is someone clicking on me or not? It's all, I, the way I'm feeling about myself is based on external circumstances. So it's all about what can I do that feels good, makes me feel strong, makes me feel better. I mean, I literally on a daily basis decide what I'm taking in and what I'm not taking in because yeah. I know what helps me to feel better and what makes me feel worse. I mean, it sounds simple, but it's not necessarily simple. Well, you got to walk into all your fears. You got to walk into yes. all of that discomfort, and that—that's that process of slowly doing this right and getting the support to yes. do it right. Because some of those fears are really scary and overwhelming, and, and your body just goes, "No way, no way that's are right. we going there." You're not going right. to take care of yourself in that way, and you're not going to set that boundary. Absolutely not. And you that's need right. the support of someone else to like, "Hey, I got you." You know, I got you. You could do it. Yes. Having like pals and buddies that, you know, a friend of mine always says, sometimes you make the codependent choice. Do you know what I mean? Because sometimes you're, it's just too difficult. You know, you're with your, I don't know, ex-wife or whomever it is, and you really want to set a boundary but you don't want to tolerate this. And you just say, okay, today I don't have the bandwidth. I'm not going to do it. And that's okay too. But that's you know still a mean? choice. I mean, that's to me, that's like conscious, you know, it's like, it's a yes. conscious choice and you're doing it. And sometimes we do that. It's okay. So, you know, yes. like, I don't, this is not a hill I need to die on. I'm not going to do it. I'm overwhelmed. But right. you, at least you're at that point, aware of your own process to be able to know that you're letting go of your own boundary and that, Yes, that and moment. that can be empowering in itself, just making yeah. that decision. I mean, I often just say to people, if you can confront the discomfort and be with the discomfort, typically there might be a spike of intense, as an old colleague of mine used to say, you're going to have intense bodily sensations. <laughs> you're going to have an intense physiological experience. But if you set the boundary, then it's for longer term comfort then you're not going to have to experience it. But if you keep not facing that, it's long-term discomfort. Do you know what I mean? It's avoidant behavior that continues the situation over and over again. But if you address something, yeah, it might spike, but then it's good for a while. Do you know what I mean? Yep. So it's really teaching yourself how to be okay with the discomfort. You know, we're not going to die from it. You know, but you only know that from taking those small steps. You know, I give an example in the book. If you're uncomfortable speaking up to your spouse, try at the coffee shop. If they get your coffee wrong, try to, you know what I mean? Yeah, like small little steps. Deeper places. Yes, because speaking up is so important to your own empowerment. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to note out, like when, when we actually look at like, what we would see as like healthy relationships, generally healthy. Yes. They have really good boundaries. Right. Relationships have really good boundaries. Right. And maybe these people who do this, you know, uh, these wholehearted people, I think as Brene Brown says, who maybe right. had 
upbringing that was good enough to to get them there and they didn't have all this other stuff in the background sure. they they do this and they, they're able to they just kind of do these boundaries automatically and they express their needs and and if we've had trauma in our past especially attachment trauma yeah. and early childhood trauma we don't we don't know how to do that or we have a lot of fears around doing it yes and absolutely. so that's what you're really walking into. But healthy people who don't have those fears, they usually can set a boundary pretty easily and say, hey, that doesn't feel good for me. Please right. do that. And they don't worry right. about it. And they just do it. It's but amazing. That's <laughs> it's amazing. Right. Wow. It's amazing. And it does require practice. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It really depends what your experience was growing up and if there were any boundaries or no boundaries or how people dealt right. with feelings or how. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, yeah, it is. It's so much walking into that discomfort. But like you said, I mean, it's hopeful because you can do a little bit at a time. You don't have to do it all yes. at once. You just Absolutely. start getting better and better at it and you get more and more comfortable. And then I think like what you were saying earlier too, is you get the freedom. When you yes. have boundaries, you, you have freedom. Huge, huge. And I do have some processes in the book on the chapters on fear and the chapters on anger about how to kind of work through if you have a fear. You know, there's a process on how you can see where it came from, and how is it still operating in my relationships? Because that's critical. Yeah. I mean, every human has fear. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're in addiction or not. We all have fear and we all manage it differently. And so the key is, though, to not be operating from the past. And most humans are. We just don't know it, right? Absolutely. So, so that's important. Sarah, this has been such a great conversation. Before we go, okay. I always like to ask one question at the end sure. of the podcast, everybody. Someone out there, maybe they're struggling with codependency or they're they're listening to this podcast and they need some support and you could tell them one thing. What would you want to tell them? What would you want to uh, say? I would just say like, you're worth it. And it's possible to find peace and joy and happiness. And I would just say the first thing to do, because we've said this so much, is to check in with yourself for literally, even if it's five minutes a day, and say, what do I want? What do I need? What works for me? Really, because this recovery is all about getting more in touch with yourself. And then you're going to be happy. You're going to be happier once you can identify that. And get the book and email me, whatever you want to do. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it was lovely meeting well, you. Hold on. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Hold on. Please, uh, where where can people where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you? Where can they go? Yeah. I mean, I do have an email, drsaramisho.com. I mean, a uh, um, website, drsaramisho.com. And, you know, maybe six months from now, we'll talk again. A friend of mine, a transgender male attorney, sober friend of mine, he and I are starting a YouTube channel called Leaving Crazy Town. And we're going to have topics each week. And we're going to, it's going to be great. We've started recording and it's taking a while, but probably in maybe another four or five months, it'll, we're going to launch it. So that's something that's coming down the road. I love the title. Yeah. <laughs> we crazy all, yeah. Yes. So thank <laughs> you so much. It was yeah, lovely. I will put all the links in the show notes. You can give me the sure. link. So if anybody wants that information, just go to addictedmind.com yes. and you can get all the, all the links there. Great. So Sarah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and, and talking. I loved it. Thank you. Great meeting you, Dwayne. 
Take care. Okay, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. There you can find all of Sarah's links. That's at theaddictedmind.com. And if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, write a review. I really appreciate it. Or share the podcast with a friend. That's awesome too. I do read the reviews and they do mean a lot to me. And I'm pretty blown away at the impact the Addicted Mind podcast has had on so many. So that's super exciting. So I look forward to that. And join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.